Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I had a really hard time mentally, kind of had a bit of a breakdown, pretty deep depression. And I've spent the last three years, I guess, kind of putting myself back together a bit finding out what's important for me and trying to fix my body, which in turn has been helping me with my mind. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Mike Guest. Mike is a photographer with a particular passion for the ocean, waves and surfing. I've known Mike for a few years and we've often chatted about our work and what's going on in our confused creative brains. And now you're being subjected to exactly that. There's a recurring theme to some of the podcasts recently. And like another that was recently released, this one features what could probably be described as a bit of live therapy. I think it's pretty healthy for two outdoorsy, white, bearded men to natter to each other about their feelings. So, alongside conversations about the creative journey and the pursuit of perfection, strap in for a heavy ride. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So, if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Mike Guest. Let's start at the start. If you could just introduce yourself, tell me who you are, what you do, whatever that means to you. <laughs> uh, my name is Mike Guest often known as guesty to a lot of people. Um, I push buttons on cameras, I bob around in the water a lot, uh, I do it for my art, and I make money out of it. Amazing. And how do... I mean, that's a... Lots would say that's a dream job. It's what I always wanted to do, actually. (laughs) Um, How do you end up going from your childhood to where you are now? Yeah, I suppose... Grew up in Scotland, grew up in Edinburgh, um, was kind of into skiing when we were younger and all that, went to swimming lessons, but would never have seen where that little kid was to where this guy is now. Um, I left school without much. In fact, I think I got, I think I say I got a B in computing, but I think it was actually a C, but I upgraded it Um, in higher education. And I just left and started working. Started um, as a chef, short order chef, kind of working in a catering business at the side of the school so I could still see my mates and hang out at lunch, which was pretty sweet. Um, And from that point on, I saved up money, went and taught in a school in Australia as an outdoor education assistant. So just taking Aussie kids into the bush, um, which was pretty random for a Scottish guy that knew nothing about all the things that could kill you. Don't quite know how I got that job. Um, And from there, ended up back in the UK after some travels, did a technical theatre college course and found myself learning how to do lighting and rigging, stage management. Didn't last long because me and education have never been best pals. Um, And actually, I got this. It was brilliant. I just remember this the other day. I got this letter from one of the lecturers or a, a list of companies. He was like, Mike, 
to be honest, I don't think this is for you. Give these guys a call. Tell them I gave you a recommendation. They'll probably give you some work. Ten years later, I'm hanging out of ceilings in music stadiums or weddings or whatever it is, and I'm rigging lights, and I'm, you know, towing generators, driving forklifts and telehandlers, just jack of all within the events trade. Um, and so this was this kind of wild 10 years of traveling a lot. But every winter, my obsession with snow was so hard that I just worked my ass off through the summer. Get out to the winter, go to this little place called Engelberg in Switzerland, live on bare bones, work as a, you know, uh, what they called the cookie schlumpe, which is the, um, <laughs> the kitchen bitch. Uh, like, just doing whatever. Um, didn't speak the language, neither did the chefs. But I skied, I chopped veggies, and I drank beer. And I did that ski bum thing, and I came back in summer, and I worked my ass off. And I just kept doing that and doing that. Um, until there was this shift where I picked up a camera. And that's this weird, muddy thing that I don't quite know how it happened. Um, I think, as with everything in my life, there's been pivotal people that have said things to me. Like a production manager was like, Mike, you're great, I love having you around but you hate this. Stop doing this. On the other side, my sister in New Zealand going, probably find you a job out here. You've not turned 30 yet. You could get a visa. Do it. She's, she's pretty forceful. I was like, I'm on. Threw away the UK phone, as it were, went to New Zealand, and, you know, this shift from events and rock and roll and music and all that kind of stuff I just saw this world of photography through one of Joe's friends. And we started filming her events, you know. Um, she does these coaching events for women um, called Mission Wow. Women of Winter, Women of Waves, Women of Water. And it's a kind of a place where it's just women learning, no guys involved, um, female coaches and male coaches actually now. Um, and she needed it documented. So we were documenting it on little cameras, um, me and Ross. And it became this thing where I was like, oh, quite like this. I think I might be okay at this. Um, yeah, so from that point on, came back to the UK, still did a bit of music stuff, still did some pushing boxes. And then at some point just went, Fuck, I've got to pull the pin. Like, I have to just try and do this full time. And for the last 10 or 12 years, I have been rudderlessly wandering around the earth in Scotland trying to make a living out of it. And, I mean, it is a bit... I suppose I've worked a lot in the climbing industry and a lot in the expedition world and outside of climbing as well, but how the hell do you make a living as a freelance surf photographer? Well, so here's the thing. Ultimately, I don't. You know, I have all these other elements of things that I do um, and the surf photography part of it very soon on when I picked up a water housing and went I want to use this it was a friend of mine Nick young Scottish guy used to build his own um, amazing character that was really a kind of a catalyst for me to get into underwater photography and he showed me all the things I got into it everyone else was going down the drone line I was like I'm getting a water housing but being a, someone that liked to surf and being a photographer, I saw this thing in between going, oh, shit. If I photograph places and put it up, then I potentially make it more popular. And so there was this thing in my head where I was like, oh, no, I've just sabotaged myself. Like, I love it. I love being in the water if I'm surfing or if I'm shooting, you know. But then I kind of went, well, actually, how much do I want to monetize this? And also, how much is there to be made? Is this going to be a really stressful, penniless world? Do I want to go down that? And I think what happened is I kind of shifted and went, okay, long form. And I don't think I was conscious of that decision, but in hindsight, I can see it. I thought, okay, I'm just going to take my time and I'm going to document stories over 10 years. Only one of those has come out, which was like such an honor and I'm still a bit like shocked and I got an article um in the surface journal which you know if you're in surf it's kind of like um 
yeah, it's kind of the one. Um, you know, and it, it came through having shot my friend for almost eight to ten years and someone else picking up on that through his lines, my lines, who knows how they found it. And and I got to to have something like 16 photos in the journal. I still can't believe it when I open it. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, on the side of that, and I'm very honest about that. I try to be pretty honest about that. You know, I shoot stuff for whiskey brands. I'm really lucky to work for two wonderful brands who have had me for eight years doing internal comms and marketing stuff, doing some external stuff. But I know my lane. I know what they want from me. And I've developed a relationship with the management. And I'd hope to think that the distillers and some of the people at the distillery kind of see me coming around and think, oh, there he is. He's back again. Um, so it, it's very varied. Um, yeah. Whiskey and waves doesn't sound too bad. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I think you've got to be careful. Disclaimer, don't be, don't be drunk when you go surf. Um, <laughs> but, we, you know, we had a collaboration project. And, and actually how that happened, it's a, that is a good point. Classic thing. I got into working with this um, whiskey brand through my pal that I surf with, who's an osteopath was treating someone that was putting together a pitch. And in his studio is a bunch of my water shots, not surf. She commented on them. And then he badgered her and said, you've got to talk to Mike. You've just got to talk to him. And she broke down and, you know, had the meeting with me. And I was in this real fancy office and I just felt so nervous. And it was like really awkward for the first 10 minutes. And then it was just all good. You know, and that started my route down getting into a company like that, which, you know, probably wouldn't have been accessed if it hadn't been for that kind of network of friends and that kind of work or thing that I put out. So what's your lifestyle like now? Hmm. I'm currently in New Zealand. I've extended a stay that was going to be couple months and for a number of reasons I've been struggling with um, some really bad back problems in the last few years in fact to be honest for about 10 years um, and post-covid and during covid I had a really hard time mentally kind of had a bit of a breakdown pretty deep depression and I've spent the last three years I guess kind of putting myself back together a bit finding out what's important for me and trying to fix my body which in turn has been helping me with my mind. So the way that life looks at the moment was I put a pause button on photography and film during COVID because everything I did was travel or having people come into the country. So I drove a forklift and a telehandler on a TV set, an Amazon Prime drama, um, for one of my best mates, Gav, who's a carpenter, with these 16 awesome men and women who just get on with it, and make beautiful scenery. And I was the stagehand, so kind of the whipping boy, back to being like what I was in the kitchen in Switzerland. Um, and I just forklifting, sweeping up, you know, doing a little bit of joinery. My maths is pretty bad, so I wasn't actually allowed to cut anything after the first day. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, life, life has spun around. I didn't pick up a camera for a year or so apart from these really intense periods where I kind of shot every morning in the water during COVID, during lockdown, um, inspired through a friend of mine called Nick Pumphrey, a Cornish photographer. And I, yeah, I've, where I am right now, house sitting, I've got a dog uh, for a month and I'm really enjoying shooting and I'm shooting for my sister again. Um, but it's like 12 years down the line and what she's doing has completely evolved. Um, and what we are as siblings has totally evolved. So we've got better communication. We're older. We're in our forties. We've probably got over some of our shit. And, um, I'm just enjoying spending time with my sister who I don't get to spend time with. She's been here 22 years. Um, and that's, it's pretty special. So yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place. And if I can ask, which, you know, I didn't say this at the start or I haven't recorded the intro yet, but, um, you know, I know you, right? Like, we know each other a little bit, so I feel like I can dig maybe more than if this was a cold call, but 
what was it that led you down that tricky path? Yeah, no, no worries. I'm, I have been very open and I am very open about that. I, 2019, I split up with someone from a long-term relationship, packed up my life, put it in storage, got in my van and was working on the road with a brand, um, doing a kind of repair program for them all over the place, on the move. Um, and I got together with someone else. And that whole experience and or that whole split was pretty traumatic. And that whole shifting of my life was, was pretty traumatic. And really what had happened in hindsight is that I had just been going at 100 miles an hour for 10 years and not stopping. And every so often my back would give in. I'd be a bit broken and I'd build myself back up and I'd get out. And it wouldn't take too long, one or two weeks. Mind-wise, I was okay. I wasn't too, you know, struggling too much with it. But put on top of the pandemic and being thrown back to Edinburgh, you know, when the pandemic happened, I was uh, in Austria. My van was in Amsterdam at the office and my house was rented out to a friend. I'd gave, given my house to a friend of mine. Um, who's having a really tough time and needed a, a fresh break. So I'm like thrown back. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Living in the van. And then finally moved back into my house and I just fell apart. You know, I was in this kind of whirlwind of thoughts and emotions about the past, the guilt, the shame, um, and just pure exhaustion, like right down to my bones. You know, I was just spent. And... Um, and, you know, it was a month of drinking and, like, what are we doing? Like, you know, like so many people during that period, it was horrendous for people. And for some people, it wasn't. And, and I, you know, I never begrudge anyone that, you know, it's like, hey, have you had a great time? Awesome. I didn't, but there you go. Um, and so it, I basically, yeah, I pushed myself too far. I didn't know what I needed to do to, to get myself back. And I guess I'd hit 40. Never thought I was going to have a midlife crisis. To be fair, probably did. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's kind of what happened. And that process to... I think I need to change the language, like to sort myself out, to just get back in the flow, has probably been like three years, really. And where are you at with it now? Mm, very good question. <laughs> Um, I'm at a place where I know what sets me off, like on a bad track. But more importantly, as opposed to watching out for that, I'm starting to learn to find the things that I need on a daily, monthly, and yearly basis to keep me at 100 miles an hour. Like I've always thinking, I thought I had to slow down. And yeah, we'll naturally slow a bit with age. But I think with the people that I've been talking with, the work I've been doing, the reading, the listening, like I am a hundred miles an hour. If I feel that right, I put the right mental and mental fuel and physical fuel into me. I can keep doing that. And I can have these times where I go, you are not allowed to do anything. You are on chill. That chill might be free diving on the West Coast of Scotland. That might be something fairly active but it might also just be walking with a dog for a month for my mates you know um going to a gym i'm going to a gym i never thought i'd go to a gym <laughs> but i find this amazing mobility gym with this guy gareth with very few words but any words he does say are well worth listening to um and so yeah i'm at this point where i'm i've done so much reading i've read you know buddhist texts and listened to bloody Andrew Huberman podcast until he's like pouring out my ears. Um, I've got all this information, classic kind of ADHD, sort of dyslexic individual. And now I just need to kind of streamline it and just make it real simple because actually it doesn't need to be complicated. So I'm at that filter process, um, I think would be the best ex ex example or explanation. It's really interesting hearing you talk about it like that because, you know, 
I'm not going to make it about me for too long, but, you know, I've been there. I know what it's like. Um, I hit the sort of floor at speed. And through the recovery process, alongside a professional, which I would recommend to everybody, regardless of your current state, um, she, one of the conclusions of the whole process, which was long, it was like nine months, she said, you know, you have two states. You have, and she named them, She's like, you have ecstatic euphoria and contemplative melancholy. And they're both extremely important to you. And you shouldn't be scared of the melancholy. Like, you need it. You need to own it. And, and I'm not going to turn this into a self-help podcast, but it changed my life. Because I used to think, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm this kind of golden cogs, you know, everything's brilliant, everything's brilliant, and I'm not. And I need to hide from that and not let anybody know that I'm in the the sort of the melancholy, the the wallowing, the contemplative bit, but that's the recalibration. You know, that's the breaks, that's the learning, that's the the downtime, right? And I think so many of us, whether it's social media or whether it's peer pressure or whether it's, you know, fear of missing out, like we just feel like if we're not moving at 100 miles an hour, then that's a bad thing. Is it, you know? I mean, that's kind of a rhetorical question. Yeah. But... That's so well put, Matt, and like... Again, like to go back to the start part, I totally agree with you with the counselling thing. So to to explain my what I did was, yeah, I went and got some act act commitment therapy, action commitment therapy, which kind of takes a little bit of that Eastern vibe in, which quite like, you know, like I like for thought of a better way to put it, a bit of woo woo, a bit of science, and then a bit of Spock, a bit of Vulcan, <laughs> you know. And I like that balance, you know, like. I'll never be a devout X, Y, and Z. I'll absorb it, I'll absorb it, I'll absorb it. And then I'll kind of go, cool, there's my cocktail for, for how that works. Um, and again, I think I would totally agree with you. And I think, again, it's kind of why we get on and when we clicked and just talked at each other like, you know, uh, rapid fire outside Kendall, you know, we click because ultimately we're very similar in that sense it's full gas or it's like, whew, melancholy but contemplative, that deep thinking, which probably the older we get, we learn to maybe not do too much of that into ourselves, but we do it, look out into the projects that we're doing, the art we want to put out, how we want to be as a partner, a friend or whatever, how we want to make an effect in the world or how we just want to make an effect on the small bubble that's around us. Um, and I think that misunderstanding of counselling or therapy often has that American, oh, I'm have to see my therapist, you know, like a negative connotation. And ultimately it shouldn't be like sports people have coaches, but they have physical and mental coaches. You know, it's no different. Why shouldn't any human, whether they're a CEO or, you know, like an architect or whatever, whatever your persuasion is, it doesn't matter. But the more you learn about your mind, the more you learn about your brain and how you tick, the better you can, how else do you say it, turn up, you know, be a good dude to everyone around you. And I think the danger for me now, or I noticed, is that like I need to like hone it in a bit, find that little list, roll with that, and know that that list could change. And those things that work for me now might not work down the line. Because I'm also, I don't know about you, it's like someone explained it uh, the other day, I'm like a bit of a racehorse, although I'm totally not competitive. I put my blinkers on and I'm just like, you know, drop the handbrake and then the next thing you know, you've hit the wall. <laughs> but there's a lot of good things have just happened back there. <laughs> We're so similar in that regard. Like I am... Um... My uh, my mum always called it Lego syndrome growing up. Like, I can't stop building things. And as soon as they're built, I'm not interested in them anymore. I'm like, I'm on to the next thing, I'm on to the next thing, run at a thousand miles an hour. But also, like, if I get into something new, I can't just do it a bit. Like, I got into growing food in lockdown and now I'm obsessed and I've got two polytunnels and probably, I don't know, 50 square meters of, you know, I can't just grow some tomatoes. I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe there's nothing wrong, but it's just the type of brain maybe. Yeah, and I think that's some like let's chat a little bit about that, like the language that you use, and you caught yourself out doing that, and that's something I learned um, 
One of my best friends, Chris, lives in Switzerland. We grew up together as kids. And actually, the reason I went there for my first winter was we could share this like little miniature apartment in this mountain town because he was in Zurich as a scientist on a scientist's wage. I was a bum. And he was like, then we get to hang out. And um, me and Chris don't see each other regularly, but we'll probably send a voice message to each other almost every day for the last 20 something years. Um, and I was noticing like things he would say about himself. And we both read this book called I Am Enough, self-help book, yes. Woman called Marissa Peer, brilliant piece of literature. And it's a really simple thing of what I said earlier that hit me was if you put in junk food to your body, you'll feel like crap. If you talk to yourself with negative um, words and phrasing and just being shitty to yourself, you're going to feel shit. So me and Chris, I, he read the book, I read it, and we reread it at the same time. And when we would call and talk, we'd pull each other up. We allowed each other to pull each other up on WhatsApp. And I'd be like, you're being a bit of a fellow to yourself because we used to use a lot ruder words and we decided we weren't going to use some of those ruder words. So it became a joke. But actually, it massively helped the two of us and it massively helped our friendship, which was already awesome. But now it's like next level. There's no, nothing's off the table with us. And I've, I'm really lucky that I've got, you know, a handful of guys actually and female friends. But really, I think more importantly at the moment to talk about this is a bunch of guys that I'm able to share with, which is really important. I mean, we kind of did that, you know, on the steps of a tent and we were like, just like, blah. <laughs> but maybe, the, maybe, why did we do that? You know, maybe it's because, and I don't want to get too, I don't know, maybe I do. I just think it's, I don't want to be too cliche, but like, you know, big boys don't cry, right? And that I think part of a problem yeah. with our industry, lifestyle, scene, community, call it what you want, is there's still a big, big element of big boys don't cry. We're strong and we're brave and we're tough and we don't ever crack. And I think actually part of why I did crack is because I'd been wearing this armor for so long and I'd never really taken it off to have a look at how the scars were healing. And they weren't, they were getting deeper and bigger and the, they, weren't, they weren't healing at all. And I think so when you then meet yeah. someone who you can sense has an openness to them or who is vulnerable or who's been through stuff, it, you just go, oh, an ally, thank God, let's, let's talk, you know, let's do it. And then, you know, the, the, the self-helpy cliche bit is like, I look forward to a time where that's very, very normal, but we're a long way away, long way away. And yeah. I think actually yeah. it's really relevant. One thing I wanted to ask you tonight, because I sort of guessed we'd go here, is around like the ski season, ski bum lifestyle and whether or not that perpetuates this. You know, some, most people do one season, right, if they do one at all. Um, I've never done one, I don't know what it's like, but you did 10. You know, does that help or hinder when it comes to like mental health and sense of place and purpose? <laughs> really good question. Um... I think it has a massive effect on it. I think for me, that constant back and forward, constantly packing up my flat back in Edinburgh into storage, pack my car, drive out, eat, sleep, repeat, eat, sleep, repeat, constant, constant, constant. I was on this huge dopamine or serotonin spike, whichever kind of one it was, and I just progressively pushed it harder and harder and harder. All the friends that I had, you know, 50 or 60% of them were professional athletes or professional photographers. You know, the level of what was going on and being done was, was really high. So that level of excitement. And so these crashes that would come when I would come back from the end of a season were like apocalyptic, but my mates could see it. I couldn't. And they were like, oh, he's back. He's euphoric. He's like, he's loving it. And I guess it's, um, yeah, I, I think... I don't regret anything in life ultimately because, you know, what what can you do about it? But some of those things that have happened in the past have caused scars or I've taken a long time to heal from. Something that was incredibly important to me 
and gave me so much of my life also created this kind of potentially slightly manic person? Or was I just always going to do that? You know, like, is that ultimately what my path was? But sort of going back to what you were saying, is very male dominant, is very masculine. And if we were to talk about like masculine and feminine energy as opposed to the physical forms of masculine and feminine, you know, you don't get taught that. Like, wish someone had explained that to me at school. Would I have listened? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Um, but as I understand that kind of balance of masculine and feminine, um, which is an ongoing education for me, knowing what I need for certain situations or why I'm feeling a certain way. Um, but yeah, that that lifestyle. I mean, you could people be like, oh yeah, sounds like an easy life, you know. I've been self-employed for 22 years and it's hardcore. Like, yeah, there's all this stuff that people see from the lens of social media or the work that you're putting out. Um, a great friend like James Bowden actually put it, he was like, you know, good luck takes a lot of fucking hard work. And I'm not whining. I'm not moaning about anything. I feel very lucky for all the chances I've had but I've definitely worked for it you know like when it's on I'm I'm grafting and I'm hardly sleeping so I think it's yeah it's interesting it's yeah so I kind of, <laughs> I kind of went off on one there no it's good I mean this is a deliberately stupid question but is there part of you that thinks well why don't I just go and get a job oh dude every year like multiple times Honestly, the thing I want to do, I just go like, I want to go and do fence posts. I want to go do fencing because then when I get to the end of the fence, I'm done. Like the creative endeavor seems to ultimately be endless. Like it's always not quite right. It's always not quite finished. There could be another episode. There could be this. It's these like fragments or frayed ends that you constantly keep grabbing onto. Um, something that taught me to start not to do that was, um, yeah, back in lockdown, I kind of talked about this thing that ended up getting called Dawn Days with my friend Nick. And at the first instance, it was just turn up, go out, shoot, come back. There was no idea I was going to do it for a month or whatever, if I was going to even put the work out. I just had my camera. It was a 10-minute walk to the beach. I've got a wetsuit. It's midwinter. Why wouldn't I? But it turned into this thing where I could take photos, shoot them, make a little minutes edit or a video, put some soundtrack under it, and then just put it out. And I would write something, a diatribe, which ironically someone turned around to me and was like, you do realize that's your journal? I was like, oh, yeah. I just published my journal online with, like, all my feelings. <laughs> so I had this artistic response. I journaled, but I just put that as the post. You know, I put it on multiple formats so people that weren't on social media could enjoy it. And I did something that had an end. I finished it at the end of that month. I was like, I'm done. Um, I guess it also fulfilled something for doing something for the greater good, which can sound maybe a bit pious or whatever, but it was a genuine thing that I wanted to put this work out, talk about this, and give people these sort of slow meditations as they kind of got known a little bit with the video stuff to kind of just help people maybe cope and stop scrolling. You know, in my naivety, maybe I could stop a few people and they'd go, oh, wow, yeah, okay. Um, and, and not from a kind of external validation process. I just thought, I've got the ability to do this. Maybe this will be good for other people. Um, and so, like, my point about that was just learning to let go, learning to put something out, put it to bed, move on. I'm not saying I've worked out how to do that, <laughs> but I'm aware of it. <laughs> I so hear you. Like, it's... I just think it's any creative pursuit. Like, the perfect... I mean, the, the line for me that works is the perfect is the enemy of the good. There's no such thing as perfection and everything has to have an end. And I, you know, I've been doing this 15 years and, I mean, I even have it with podcasts. I go... Oh, I probably could have done it. You know, I look back at the early episodes and I'm like, oh, imagine if I interviewed those people now with 130 podcasts under my belt and all that experience. But it's like, no, I did it then. And it was good. Maybe it wasn't great and I'll aspire for great now, but aspiring for perfection is dangerous. And 
unachievable. I mean, even with film projects, you know, I did one that took two and a half years. Like, it's good. I'll tell you it's good. Is it great? Eh, I don't think it's great. But it's good and it's good enough. And then it's like, I mean, for me personally, it's then I need the next thing fast. Otherwise, I'll dwell on it and I'll take it down and re-edit it. And that's not good. But I just think, you know, probably anybody who's creative is going to resonate with this or it's going to resonate with them. And, yeah, you know, I don't want to use language like struggling artist, but I think, you know, because we often attribute that to whether or not somebody's commercially successful, but I think many artists are struggling artists because it's not tangible, it's not quantitative, we can't measure it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like you've got quantitative and qualitative. And I was in part of a wonderful project last year, which was born from Dawn Days, and an art centre up in Caithness, my friend Helen and her boss saw this funding come up and it was like science and art kind of mixes involving the community and asking questions. And she just kind of called up and was like, do you fancy doing this? Like, do you know anyone that does research into surf therapy or blue mind? So we were kind of looking at that blue mind theory. So for folk that maybe don't know about that, in a simple nutshell, it's about how the ocean and blue spaces affect our mental health. So that was the premise. My friend Jamie just did a PhD in flow state with surf therapy. I think the first time for it to ever be done. Cornish fella that lives in Scotland. And I was like, wait a minute. If we put them together, we could do this. So we got the funding and they okayed it. And over eight months, through a number of weeks and weekends we came up with this kind of concept of called Out of the Blue. And we basically took these kids who are our steering group and who got involved with what we're going to research, what we're going to ask. But as part of that process, we took them through a kind of blue space immersion. So we took them to like, um, I don't know if they're worldwide, these kind of things, but in Britain, we've got these kind of sea pools, which are kind of like half of a concrete wall. And when the tide comes in, it fills up. So we took them there as the first place. We played with cameras and distracted them with, you know, phones under the water to take imagery. And then we took them outside of that wall into the actual ocean. And then we took them to a beach and we took them to different environments. And along with another artist, this wonderful woman, Sinead Agan, me, Jamie and Helen, we facilitated these spaces, took them into them, asked them questions, did workshops with them. And... Fast forward eight months, we had a bunch of kids that at first were utterly scared of getting in the water, some of them. Some of them wouldn't even, like, put their head under a shower, potentially. And we had them diving through waves, taking a surf lesson. We'd snorkeled with them. And we'd explored the creativity around that. We had explored the emotions that they feel around that. And what they ended up doing was creating an immersive space, probably about sort of three times a little theater space. We projected onto um, some material of the underwater stuff they had filmed. We created a sound bed with music and sound that we sourced locally. And they wrote some prose and a whole kind of like experience, like someone was going to breathe to free dive and slow down. And, you know, it was like this 20 minute experience. And these kids, you know, and it was up and down for all of us through this whole process kind of came through this process having broken down a bunch of barriers, a bunch of friendships, and, you know, as, as educators, filmmakers, or artists, whatever label people want to give us in that position, we all learn a ton. And so 
really long way to talk about quantitative and qualitative research. We had Jamie, and what he would do is pre, during, and after sessions, we would record chats and we'd write down words and we would see how the negativity turned into positivity to make it really simple. And when we did the exhibition space, it was a room about this size, maybe double, and we had just like printed loads of words out and we showed that journey of fear and anxiety into this place of joy and connection. And ultimately as well, you know, what came out of it is that I feel that those kids and even myself had an even deeper kind of love for the outdoor environment. And hopefully that will also help them to pass that information on and to care about the environment. You know, if someone's, this is a sort of side section, if, if someone's not feeling happy in themselves or doesn't have a connection to the ocean or the land, how are they going to care about what happens to it? So that's a little bit like pie in the sky. But actually, the more I talk to my sister about the education work she does with native tree nurseries and planting and education, it's the same. Like we've got to educate and take people, facilitate them into that space, make them feel comfortable in it and show them that they can make art out of it or they don't have to make art out of it. They can just be in it. Um, it was kind of like a highlight for me, like out of all the things I've done of late, I mean, like, I was in tears at points through that process. Like, just like, oh, wow, this is, <laughs> this is awesome, you know? And then the next week I'm shooting someone drinking some whiskey, being <laughs> like, whoa, what happened? But both of those give me the perspective to enjoy them now. I think, like, I love that corporate work, actually, because I love the people, you know, and I love working with those kids because I love those young supple minds that just like come up with mad thoughts yeah and it sounds like i mean you know we won't go into this too much unless you want to but you know the type of brain that you've alluded to having i think that diversity is probably very healthy for you yeah yeah like uh, i mean you know i found out i was dyslexic at a very young age um neurodiverse neurodivergent it's, you know the language has changed it was called a disability you know, when I was a kid, which is a pretty gnarly label to give someone or anyone, you know, like, and um, it has informed how I've done everything. And the more I understand about that, slash accept it, slash roll with it, I'm a lot happier if I don't fight it. Um, you know, sometimes I think maybe I've used the dyslexia thing as an excuse in the past. Maybe I've unfairly advantage myself with it. I don't I don't really know I, I'm, I'm kind of readdressing that relationship with that neurodivergence and neurodiversity but I've always believed it was a superpower because I got told that by someone when I was younger and it's one of the most beautiful things that anyone ever said to me and I'm buggered if I can remember who it is but I would love to give that person a massive hug because they changed my perception of what I felt was a disability and they just went nah you just think differently I was like oh, it's okay to be different. And I've probably been pretty bloody-minded in my 42 years on this planet about probably going slightly awkward directions and, you know, maybe a bit much. I, I don't know, but I've got here, you know, I've got my arms and legs and I'm, I'm surviving, so something's happened, right? Yeah, and I just, I don't know... I... I love these conversations, but I'm always conscious that not everybody does. But, you know, you've ended up where you are. You've done the things you've done. I sense that you are regularly hard on yourself, but maybe getting better at not being. But have you ever stopped to, I don't know the answer to this, have you ever stopped to really consider the impact you've had on those young people who you took into the water? I hadn't until we did the exhibition and the showing, and two of the parents came up to me, um, like, in tears. Um, and just some of the stuff that they said was, was magic, you know? And it didn't feed the ego. It fed my heart in the sense of, like, ah, oh, awesome. Because actually, I think that's all I really want to do. Like, I don't want... Like, people talk about legacy, all that kind of stuff. I don't really understand that in a sense. All I think about is just like, what 
good can I do? And that good could be people around me, like my family, my friends. Like, if you're there around me, like, I will do anything for you, you know, as my pals. And even the random strangers that I click with, I just can't help not to. You know, I was kind of taught that by my mum. She's like, that's what she does for people. And my sister is exactly the same. We're like, we're all about people. Um, but it really... It really struck me when those parents, you know, took the time to come and talk to us and say thank you. And equally, like, I want to thank all of those kids and the mums and dads for letting them come along because I learned so much about myself on that process. And, like, I still do. And, and I'm excited. I hope we can do it again in the future. You know, we've we've done the research. We've had to tick some of those boxes. Um, and I hope that somehow we can manage to do that again. You know, arts funding and grants are getting absolutely hammered globally. And in Scotland, they're just getting massacred. So I hope there's a way that we can do it, you know, um, and make it possible so we can take the time out and, yeah, make that happen again. I mean, I'm literally writing that down on my phone as we, <laughs> with this little pause, because I just think there'll be someone out there who'll pay for that. Um, I'm writing, yeah. Mike needs the next phase funding. <laughs> Exclamation yeah. I mean, I just, you know, green spaces, blue spaces, you know, just, it's so interesting. Like, books like for, you know, uh, Wallace J. Nickel wrote a book called Blue Mind, which is fascinating. He's kind of done tons of research, and it even goes into the economy of the blue spaces. Um you know, James Nestor did that book about Deep, which is an interesting read as well, just all about free diving and that mammalian mammal reflex we have so that literally if you put your face in a basin of water, you ultimately kind of lower your heart rate. Um, fantastic reads. You know, I think, I think that like the trajectory I would like to take is definitely way more of that stuff. But I couldn't do that all year. Because emotionally, mentally, and physically, I'd be exhausted. So, again, in balance, I want to keep shooting the whiskey stuff. I want to keep shooting the water stuff or the commercial water stuff. And I want to keep doing those art projects, but they all have a place. Because when I'm doing one, it gives me appreciation for the other and, and vice versa. But isn't there... And my mind needs that. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's a huge pride to be found in that level of self-awareness. Because I think it's easy to it's easy to run yourself into the ground, right? It's easy to overcommit or overpromise. Um, I have a book recommendation for you. Seeing as how you've Ooh. just thrown three thrown three out, um, it's one of the best audio. I think it's the best audio book I've ever listened to. I mean, it's obviously it's printed as well, but I listen to a lot of audio books while I'm running or driving. Um, it's called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krisnarik, who's an Australian philosopher. Um, who now lives in London, but I mean, the book does what it says on the tin, but it just, it, it made me, you know, just some of the stuff you were saying a minute ago, it made me question, like, am I being a good ancestor, you know, as a real motivator? And that, I think, is probably the most significant question I've ever asked myself. And I ask it of myself almost every day. And it started to govern everything. And it's amazing the power of that because I now stop looking for validation elsewhere. You know, obviously I have my little, I hate this word, but my little tribe, you know, my family and my close friends and their opinion matters to me. But am I being a good ancestor? Am I on the right side of history? <laughs> Which is a big, huge question <laughs> to ask, but I don't need anybody to know my name. That's not the point. It's just, am I adding more to the world than I'm taking away? And I haven't got an answer for you right now, but I'm working on it. <laughs> and, and you might not ever have an answer, but the fact that you're willing to ask the question is probably like the big bit, isn't it? And it's the same with like to touch back on the self-awareness thing. Like that's freaking scary. When you open that Pandora's box, no one warns you about that or I didn't listen. And so what I want to say about that bit was like, when you start realizing all these things, it's actually at a point I found myself having even more things to give myself shit about or to pick at. But it's all part of that kind of process of working yourself out. 
that you go, okay, that box is open and I can't put that lid back, but I don't have to be worried about it. This is a good thing. Um, even to the point with the lady that I worked with, um, with the ACT therapy, they tell you to give that internal critic or that those kind of voices or, or noises a different voice. And um, I gave mine the voice of Yoda because I find it hilarious. <laughs> So I'll probably said like a Wally, but like I'll actually talk to myself out loud and say something like, mm, not a very good photographer, are you? <laughs> and I instantly am like, like, it just takes me down a peg. I'm just like, shut up, <laughs> whatever, get on with it. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to start doing that. I need to pick someone. <laughs> yeah, there was a great podcast I listened to in lockdown. I think it was a bunch of, sort of creative directors and photographers and it was about readdressing that relationship with your inner critic. And I think I always had a really negative connotation with it or effect from it. But even just listening to a couple of those and thinking about it, it's asking questions. It doesn't mean you have to answer them or adhere to what it's saying. It's just like, it's an awareness, isn't it? I guess I've always been someone that like, emotions I grab onto things and feelings and it's like put it over my head and then I can't see anything and again by you know to talk like we both have by having counseling and speaking to someone that's helped me not do that too much but you know to be honest on Sunday I had a really bad day my back was bad on Friday I did something Ended up getting a bit drunk on Saturday night, which I don't really drink anymore these days. I see anymore much. Um, and then I kind of was like, I felt like crap on Sunday. And mentally I felt like crap. But I was like, you're hungover. Your body hurts. Just shut up. Just don't make any decisions. Get some good food. Go for a walk. Hang out with the dog that you're dog-sitting Life's going to be okay. Go to bed, wake up. But, you know, rewind even a year ago, that could have sent me into a kind of week or two-week spiral, potentially. So I guess it's kind of like, I don't know, am I patting myself on the back to going, hey, you know, like, or, or to tell people that, you know, there's that thing where you can catch yourself, but by no means do I walk through every single day, week and month and year like totally bang on like I totally have my ups and downs but instead of um letting those completely drive me I just kind of sit in it don't you like like we were talking about earlier you just cruise with it just be like okay what things can I do and having people around you to pull you up in it give you a nice wee kick in the arse to be like <clears throat> have you walked what are you eating yeah yeah, and it's like just being, this is a cheesy therapy phrase, but just being armed with that toolkit. And I think this world of adventure and exploration and people going off and doing amazing things. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of them now for this podcast and for work. And there aren't many, as should I say this out loud, a significant number of them could definitely find some value in some form of therapy. And it's such a funny word, therapy and therapist and... I quite like counselling as a word. I prefer it because um, just I'll do this super fast. But the most interesting thing about my experience of that was I, I, this amazing lady in Sheffield. I had a form of therapy called cognitive analytic therapy, um, and it might more than change my life. Like it, it probably saved my life, and then it made me an infinitely better person. And that's the point: is the first three months we were doing repair work, we rebuilt back to like the level I'd been on before. And then she said, I don't think you need to come here anymore. And I said, but can I keep coming? She was like, yeah, why? And I was like, I just want to see where we can go with this. And I stayed for another six months. Um, I went, I cut it down from once a week to every two weeks. And I was the best version of myself I've ever been. And the things I learned over the course of that nine months have more than stayed with me now. Like they've redefined who I am. And I think it was rather than therapy. It wasn't therapeutic at that point. It was counselling. I was learning. I was developing. You could call it growth training if you wanted to. And then suddenly we're into the realms of what astronauts do and special forces do. And, you know, like you made the point around athletes having mental coaches. 
that for me, that reframing of what we were doing in that room changed everything. It removed the, the fear and the shame and it turned it into, well, hang on, I'm like an astronaut or like a special forces soldier. Like I'm, I'm growing, I'm changing, I'm developing. And it fundamentally changed the whole thing. Yeah. I think as well, it's back to that thing about language and how we talk to ourselves, how we frame those things, and then how we externally communicate a lot of these things. And I would agree the same as that using the word therapy, but counselling feels better. And even when I say, you know, think about it more like coaching, when someone kind of like pulls back and winces at me when we're talking about something, you know, it just is coaching. And But initially, yeah, there is this, vulnerable stage and deal with that rebuild and everything but you get to that point and I think I did the same I kind of I didn't the first time I kind of went oh I've done it I'm fixed and then the wheels fell off again and I went ah I need to slow down there's no race and I chip away at it and I still speak to this lady Jana you know I've done you know I've again I've got that I tried to think of the words to to put it whether it's you know more on the spiritual side of things or on the traditional what society sees as counselling. or I just don't really, I don't see lines anyway in general. They're a blur to me. Like you pick what you pick from anything. But for me, constantly have that check-in with Jana every few months, especially when I'm in a good place and not just, when you dip down again, like consistency, like again, like food, if you constantly, if you don't eat well and then you just slam a ton in, you're going to have a massive crash. Again, with food and the same with all of this, I think for me, this is my personal experience, I just got to keep tripping it in and keep checking in on myself because once the blinkers go on, you're like, oh, what happened? Yeah. Uh-oh. Are the wheels still on? They are a few, right? <laughs> It's so fascinating. I could do hours on this, but um, I'm very conscious of time. Yeah. Um, just before we end, I'd love to ask you just to rein it with everybody. Be like, why the hell are you having a therapy session? Can you guys talk about adventure, please? So I'm going to. I just am yeah. really intrigued cool. by your um, <laughs> ten-year project. I think that's quite a rare thing to do and quite a special thing to do. And I think it would be cool to talk about it. Yeah. So I guess there's actually a few of them. Um, one of them is kind of musically based and maybe some of these people don't even know this and I'm about to tell them with a friend of mine, Rachel, uh, and my goddaughter, Rosa. Um, and I've documented her on tour and Rosa's life a little bit. I don't know where that's going. Um, Colin, we had that Surface Journal article, but that relationship stays and develops and continues and that friendship evolves. So I don't know where that will go. And then another one is two other surfers, a, a friend of mine called Nick, the guy that got me into to spearfishing, to freediving, and to underwater photography. I've been shooting with him for years, and there's been a big hiatus. And I guess ultimately they will potentially become articles. But when I look at all of these new ones with Nick and then another surfer, James, they're about these transitions of, of guys and their families going from... I, this sounds terrible and I don't, or not terrible, I don't know, free bird to father. And I don't mean that they're feeling chained or anything, just truly evolving and going, God, I want a kid and a family and how do I do this? James is a professional surfer. Nick is just an awesome human that can paint, take photos. You know, you could stick him in a jungle with a knife and a loincloth and he'll come back for the three-course dinner. But he's so deeply connected to the landscape, to his mind. And so... I don't even know where they're going. All I know is that those hard drives are backed up. There's a bunch of stuff there. And I'm just going to keep going until the time seems right. And a lot of it's water-related, very water-based. Um, so I'm kind of excited about those projects. And I guess the other thing is looking at, at Scotland and looking at the issues we have within the kind of environment, trying to work out where I go with that. Like, who do I offer my skills up to to help be part of that question? Because just posting things on Instagram or retweeting things, you know, doesn't really do anything because you're talking to the same echo chamber. And fair play for people doing it, and I'm not having a go. 
I'm just saying for me, I'm like trying to find those organizations to just go, how's it going? Totally into this. I don't really know what to do. Can I help? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we could all do with a bit more of that. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it's an interesting space to look into because you have to dig pretty deep because not everything is like it seems on the surface and reading the book by the cover is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the, one of the hardest things. I mean, we're at time, but re- that's the problem. I mean, I remember standing in the Lake District and thinking it was the most beautiful place in the world, having arrived there age 16, having had very little exposure to wild places. Fast forward eight years, and I recognise that it's a degraded monoculture that needs rescuing. And that was really hard. And then it's gone from being this beautiful paradise playground, which I, I still love it deeply. I lived there for a long time. But I see the ruin in it now and recognise that it needs fixing. But then what does fixing mean? You know, do we remove the sheep? Do we remove the walls? Do we protect cultural heritage? Do we just rewild that? Like, I don't have the answers to those questions. I know where on the fence I personally sit, but I'm a photographer and a filmmaker. Like, you know, you shouldn't let me decide. And just trying to find it all out is hard enough, let alone being the one who's got to bloody fix it. But... I don't know, my, my final call to arms on that stuff is like be, feeling like I'm a part of those things and feeling like I'm on the right team, like I'm being a good ancestor um, makes brings me more self-worth than I've ever had before. So there's something in it. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was a brilliant, and I, I forget her name. She's a big act, activist in the States and she talked about this thing and I think it was something that, really fundamentally hit me was she talked about that thing of like protest and activism and all that kind of stuff isn't just a tweet it isn't just a post whatever but the best part of it was when she said like find people that are doing what you want to do and join them don't set up another subsidiary put more energy into one space and become a louder voice and I'm I'm only scratching the surface and I wouldn't even consider myself an activist or anything. Like, but as photographers and filmmakers, you know, maybe what we can do is we can inspire people to use those spaces, to enjoy the beauty of those spaces, to help with their mental health, but then to, oh, I mean, this is quite pie in the sky, but to do something for the greater good. Um yeah, and I'm not saying that I'm doing that, but, like, I'd like to try. But sometimes the greater good is as simple as inspiring a small group of kids to go swimming every now and again. And sometimes it's releasing a podcast that gets people outside a bit more. You know, yeah. sometimes it's that simple. True. Um, cool, right. I end every podcast with the same two questions. The first... <sighs> did you know this? No. Yeah, I love it when I've people forgotten, do. I've forgotten, in fact. Um, what scares you? <laughs> do you know what I... Uh, myself. <laughs> I don't know why that came into my mind. I think you're the first person to ever say that and I've been waiting for someone to for a really long time. Because my answer's the same. But anyway, you go. <laughs> I get... Yeah, no, I... Um... God, that did come out. Whoops. Okay, I'm going to be really honest. I, you know, there are times when I can, like, literally break into tears when I feel like I'm in the best place possible and I'm totally in a good zone and it's usually a piece of music that triggers it. And I get scared of potential. I get scared of not fulfilling the potential that I should fill. And I also get scared at the amount of love that I have and feel for a lot of people around me yeah, it's a really weird thing that I've never actually put out there before, but it's something that keeps happening to me. And actually it's like, it's unbelievably draining and I basically need to sleep after it happens and it doesn't last long, but it's brilliant. So yeah, Oof, I've just said it. What brings you hope? What brings me hope? Just uh, like things that bring me hope are like almost even just walking down the street and you see someone, you catch their eye and you give them a smile 
you say hi. Like really small like things like that give me hope and watching the kindness of others and the kindness of people around me. And probably in the last three years, what gave me the most amount of hope was that how amazing my family and some of my close friends were when I was just like a puddle on the floor and they were there for me and they listened to me day in, day out. Um, that gives me hope that there's like loads of people out there and there's more people out there that can do that for other people. And yeah, it's made me realize that when I have the energy and time, then I want to do that for people, whether I know them or not. <laughs> Random strangers potentially that you connect up with, but especially the people that are around me. And yeah, support them when they need it. Amazing. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. They're immensely helpful and help us to reach a wider audience.